0: So good morning again. The title of the sermon this morning is Jesus warns against religious hypocrisy. Um, bottom line up front, this, this morning uh, is going to be difficult. Some who hear this message will be convicted and spurred on to greater holiness and, and some may hear and, and become angry. And, and um, that might even be my uh, random anonymous internet listener from Thailand, perhaps, that uh, he'll be upset with me. I do beg a fair hearing this morning, though. And I'm comforted by the thought that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. This morning we carry on our study of the Gospel according to Matthew, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. And we remember that the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, the blessings of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. And in five, thirteen through 16, if you'd go to Matthew... Chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, King Jesus tells us that we are to be the salt of the earth, we are to be the light of the world. And I'd like you to look with me at verse 16 especially. Jesus says in verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This verse is going to be relevant to us this morning, so I would ask you to please tuck it away. We're going to jump right into Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18, which Pastor Scott read earlier. And the first question that we should ask ourselves is this. Why does Jesus transition here to the topic of religious hypocrisy? What is his logical flow of thought here in the sermon? We're going to talk a lot about religious hypocrisy this morning. It it takes up more than half the chapter that's in front of us. This is apparently an important topic for our Lord but we first want to understand this logical flow. Look with me at verse 48 of chapter 5, right before chapter 6. It's the last verse of Matthew 5. Matthew 5:48. 5, Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. My point is this, there's, there's no real transition between Matthew 5 and Matthew 6. Avoiding religious hypocrisy is merely a subset of Jesus' command to us, to his hearers, to be perfect. And make no mistake, wherever there is religious hypocrisy, it is a scourge. It's a scandal. And I'm sure I don't have to rattle off a list of names of shamed Preachers. But the scandal is that ultimately it's not just the preacher's name that's besmirched. The name of Jesus Christ is besmirched. And if we are to be perfect as Jesus calls us to be, then we must not be religious hypocrites. I've been living with this text for the past several weeks and it's been difficult. None other than the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this about this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Quote, we may as well realize at the outset that this chapter 6 is a very searching one. Indeed, we can go further and say that it is a very painful one. I sometimes think that it is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us, and it will not allow us to escape. There is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one but thank God for it the christian should always be anxious to know himself end quote second jesus is continuing his indictment here of the jewish religious leadership of his day We've already talked about this in our study in Matthew. Pastor Scott mentioned this briefly last week this idea that Jesus is on a collision course with the Jewish religious leaders. For more on this, you can go back and listen to my sermon from February 28th of this year. But just as a preview to the text, look with me in chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5, Jesus says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The synagogues, of course, were the places where the Jews would go on the Sabbath day to worship. And Jesus, being a Jew, was very familiar with the activities that took place in the synagogues. And so, having seen the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leadership with his own eyes, Jesus now sets out to condemn it. Finally, Jesus also is expanding his view to indict all religious hypocrisy. Look with me at verse 7. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So I trust it's clear Jesus is bent on condemning religious Hypocrisy, brothers and sisters, if there is one thing that each and every one of us should strive to not be, it is a religious hypocrite. Now, in one sense, we're all hypocrites. Because while we remain in this body of flesh, we are all still sinners. And bottom line, when we sin, which we all do, we besmirch the name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, And we are hypocrites. And when this happens, when this happens, we must be quick to repent. Toward God and toward those persons, believers or not, against whom we have sinned. We heard it this morning, James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another. So yes, in one sense, we are all hypocrites in this life, in these bodies, but... But that reality should not provide an excuse for us to not strive to eliminate the sin and the religious hypocrisy from our lives. None of us should be content with the self-pity of, woe is me, I'm just a sinner, and I'll never be anything more than that. That is not how the Bible talks. The Bible, over and over again, tells us to work Philippians 2.12, the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The reason is this, when we work God is at work in us. And the point is this. Christians should never be content with ongoing sin, ongoing religious hypocrisy, because what we're saying, listen, what we're saying is that God is not working in our lives. When we play the self-pity game, this is what we really mean. Woe is me. Well, I, I, I guess God can't do anything about this sin in my life. Is that your story? That God's sanctifying arm is too short to reach into your dross-laden heart to provide cleansing? That the blood of Jesus Christ isn't as potent, perhaps, as it once was? That the Holy Spirit is less interested in holiness in the church today than he was, say, a hundred years ago? Or a thousand years ago? Is this the story that we're selling to the world? May it never be. No more excuses for sin. No more excuses for religious hypocrisy. We must put to death the deeds of our flesh and give sin no quarter. Paul says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And let me encourage you with this because we're just getting warmed up. But let me encourage you with this. The Apostle John writes this. This is the message we have heard from Christ and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, but there's that gospel word, right? But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God, we pray that you would give us grace to work and that you would do a work in us this morning. Okay. You've seen the logic of the passage. Now, very briefly, what is religious hypocrisy? Let's define our terms. Religious hypocrisy is simply this. It is saying that you are one thing, a Christian, and acting like something else. The Greek word has the meaning of actor, as in a play. And and you know what an actor is, right? An actor is someone who impersonates someone else. That's what actors do. Jesus gives his working definition of religious hypocrisy in Matthew 23. You don't have to go there, but please listen. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do, listen, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They don't practice what they preach, and they do all their deeds to be seen by others. By others. And so when we hear the word hypocrite from the lips of Jesus, he is referring to those who are impersonating a true disciple of God. Matthew 6, let's dive in. Verse 1. The Lord Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This warning, and it is a warning. It's the first word. This is the thesis statement of the entire discussion on religious hypocrisy. And the key to understanding this statement is found in the phrase, in order to be seen by them. Now, just a few moments ago, I asked you to tuck away a verse from Matthew 5, verse 16. Matthew 5, 16. Look at it, if you will. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So at first, this sounds like a contradiction. Matthew 6, 1. Look at it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others. How do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory statements? Well, I'll tell you, they don't need to be reconciled. Because the key, the key lies not in the actions themselves. And the key doesn't even lie in those who are watching the actions. The key is in the motivation Behind the actions. And the motivations could not be any different. Now listen again closely. Matthew five, sixteen, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew six one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I trust you see the difference in motivation. The issue is this. When you do acts of righteousness, and we should, we should do as many as we can. We should be spending our time, our talent, and our treasure in acts of righteousness. But here's the question. When you do acts of righteousness, whom, friend, do you want the recipient of those acts to see? Do you want them to see you or do you want them to see God? One theologian has said this, that the greatest moral challenge in the entire universe is to do good deeds and to have others give glory to God and not to you. So quick boots on the ground example. Let's lighten it up for a moment. Let's say you're at a red light. There's a car across from you. They have their turn signal on. They want to go left in front of you. So you give the little hand signal. Here, go ahead. When the light turns green, make your left in front of me. Now when that person makes their Pittsburgh left in front of you and doesn't wave thank you, how do you feel? What is your first instinctual reaction? Be honest. Might have happened to you on the way here this morning. Is it something like, Oh, very nice. I let you get to where you're going, and you can't even say thank you? Friend, if this is your instinctual reaction, then I want you to know, you did that good deed for yourself, and not for God. And there are hundreds of these opportunities like this for each of us every single day. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, at the gym. See, and this is what Jesus means in Matthew 6, 1 and 2 when he talks about rewards. There are rewards coming for righteousness, brothers and sisters. Make no mistake about this. Next week's sermon is going to deal with this issue. So I'm not going to say anymore in the interest of time be praised. The point I want to make this morning is that when our acts of righteousness are done for the glory of God, then he will reward us. If you wave that person on to make that Pittsburgh left with the motivation for a thank you in return and you get a thank you, then you got exactly what you wanted. And there's no additional reward for you In heaven, when you arrive there. Look at the end of verse 2. That's what Jesus says. You have received your reward. So brothers and sisters, I would ask you to go into your prayer closet and examine your heart. Examine your motivations. Ask yourself, do I want rewards in this life? Or do I want the glorious future rewards from my Father who is in heaven? All right, let's move on. Jesus gives us here in Matthew 6 three examples. Three examples. So let's begin with giving to the needy, verses 2 through 4. The first thing we need to understand is that in these three examples given by Jesus, they are given as summary actions. Summary actions. Here's what I mean. Should we give to the needy? Yes, of course we should. But giving to the needy here represents the larger category of doing good deeds for others. Yes, we give, say, money to those who are in need, or we pack boxes at the food bank, or we support evangelistic missions in the U.S. with money, or temporary room and board, or a loaner car, or a gift car. And we let ungrateful drivers make Pittsburgh lefts in front of us. And sometimes we just give a person a hug when a person needs a hug. So don't limit your understanding to some narrow view of giving here. This is larger than that. We should be doing lots of different things for lots of different people at a sacrificial cost to ourselves. Amen? Jesus is not telling us exactly what to do. But he's primarily concerned with how we do all of these things. And how does Jesus say we should do these good deeds in the world? Look at Verse 2, quietly, sound no trumpet before you. Why not? Because that's what the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. Verse 3, unconsciously, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Have you ever tried to pat your head and, and rub your belly? Like, I'm not really good at it. The right hand is moving and doing its thing and it doesn't even know. It's not even thinking about what the left hand is doing. That, that's what I mean by unconsciously, not thinking. Friends, we should be so accustomed to doing good deeds for others that we do them without even thinking about them. More than that, we should think about those deeds that we have done so little that when the deed has been done, we don't even remember that we did it. Why? Because this is how we fight the fleshly urge to desire a thank you. Your neighbor says, hey, Tim, thanks. Tim responds, he looks quizzically back at his neighbor for what? Better yet, maybe Tim should just say, you're welcome, neighbor, and not have any idea what his neighbor is talking about. That's safe. That's giving in secret. So quietly, unconsciously, and verse 4, look at it, unashamedly desiring a reward from God upon your arrival in His presence. Again, that's for next week. Let's move on. Verses 5 and following. Matthew 6, 5 through 9. I'm going to read it. Jesus says this, And when you pray, Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then, like this, and then Jesus proceeds on to provide what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Alright, so we saw that giving to the needy was a summary statement for all of the good deeds that we should be doing for our neighbors, for others. What about prayer? Here we have a summary statement for our personal intimate relationship with God. And because every Christian is a child of God, adopted into his family by faith in Jesus Christ, The expectation is that every Christian will have a personal relationship with God. This is related to the New Covenant. So what's the issue in these verses? The issue is, listen, the issue is, of course, that to be seen by others, the religious hypocrite takes a beautiful thing, like an intimate relationship with God, and turns it into an opportunity to publicly declare, look at me. Look how spiritual I am. Again, Jesus says, if, you, if what you want is to be seen by others, then have at it. You got exactly what you wanted. And no more. Now, some have taken these verses to mean that public prayer should never be done by a Christian anytime, anywhere. Obviously, we do public prayers here at Abiding Grace Church. So two things on that. These verses don't prohibit public prayer. We know this because there are many public prayers in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Acts, by Jesus himself. Also, again, the issue is not the prayer. The issue that Jesus is addressing is the motivation, the heart condition of the one who is doing the praying. You may also have noticed that here at Abiding Grace Church, we didn't recite the Lord's Prayer yet during our worship service here this morning. And we don't plan to do so later either. And we're not saying that there's anything wrong with that at all. But we don't do that as a rule because we believe that the Lord's Prayer itself is a summary of how to pray, not what to pray. And this is the point. The issue is not what to pray. Brothers and sisters, we should pray. That was the weekly one another this morning. Providentially. It was the next one in line. The issue is not what to pray but how to pray. Some translations in verse 9 even say, this is how you should pray. And how should we pray? Look at verse 6. Quietly, secretly, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. I have to ask, Do you pray in secret? It's like me asking a husband, do you spend time in quiet, private, intimate conversation with your wife? If the answer is no, then maybe some of you married folks should come up to one of the pastors after the service and schedule some counseling. Because your relationship has issues. But why is prayer to God any different? If your answer is no, I don't pray to God privately, I don't pray to God intimately, then perhaps your relationship with God the Father also has issues. I mean, doesn't doesn't that logically follow? Look again at verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, how should we pray? When you are asked to pray in public, right? That happens to some of us. We're the token Christian at Thanksgiving dinner, right? When you're asked to pray in public, say, before a big family meal, to to whom are you praying? For whom are you praying? Are you praying to impress the people around the table? Look at verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. You know, one thing that strikes me about the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew 6 is how simple, how short, how profound it is. And I'm not saying there aren't times when we should pray long. There will be times when we have a lot to say to Him. But to Him... Not to anyone else. And, and not in empty phrases. Some translations say vain repetitions, right? I mean, it would be silly for me to go out to an intimate dinner with Jen and just sit there all night. Baby, I love you. I love you. You know I love you. I gosh, Jen, I love, you. I love you. At some point, she would say, enough already. Just tell me about your day. God doesn't want that from you in public or in private. He knows who we are. He knows us so well that He even knows what we need before we ask Him. Verse 8. So brothers and sisters, just keep it real. Now, it's time to widen our aperture a bit. I say again, that in the context of Matthew 6, prayer is just a summary, stand-in term for our religious activities Toward God. I have to ask you. When you sing. Who are you singing for? Who are you singing to? I have to ask because Jesus asks. Are you singing to be heard by others? And if you are then you've received your reward. Do you sing to God in secret? How about when you come through the church door? Do you want to be seen? Making sure everyone notices you got your Bible under your arm. Jesus says, you got it. The question is, do you read and reread these letters that your God has written for you? Third category, fasting, verses 16 through 18. Please go there. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Here, fasting is a summary term related to our personal discipline. Think of it this way. Giving to the needy is how we deal with others. Prayer is how we deal with God. And fasting summarizes how we deal with ourselves, our bodies. Look at verse 16. What is the main issue? The main issue is not the what, but the how and the why. How should our discipline look? Verse 16. In a word, normal. Not gloomy. We should fast, but it should not seem like a burden that we wish we didn't have to bear. Let's say you come home from work every day with this gloomy look on your face. Day after day, just depressed is all get out. Let me ask you this. What will your spouse and your children think of your boss? That he's some kind of hard, unloving taskmaster, right? Is this how we want others to think of our Lord? No. We discipline ourselves. Paul says that he beat his body knowing that we are training ourselves to run faster, to run farther, to jump higher, to stay awake longer. Why? In the service of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Verse 17. Anoint your head. Wash your face. Comb your hair. Put your normal clothes on. And go and be about your business. Then, from God comes your reward. No one needs to know that you haven't eaten in five days. Because you're disciplining your body to be more clean for the service of the kingdom. And again, this fasting is just a summary. Are we called to fast from food? Yes. And maybe you've never fasted. We should talk about that. But is that all? No. We're called to fast from other things as well. Especially things that bring us worldly pleasure. Don't go there. Just listen. Paul writes this. 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now between a husband and wife, sex is a wonderful thing, but Paul says there's a time to put it off. For what? Prayer, devotion, focus on God, disciplining our bodies. So I have to ask you, are you in the habit of joyfully putting aside the things that bring you pleasure, good things, in the service of God as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So many of us have addictions to physical pleasure, and I am not at listen. I am not asking anyone within the sound of my voice to become a monk or a nun. Never, never. But is God calling you to a higher level of discipline and devotion than the one you're in now? Are you training for the kingdom to finish the race, to receive the crown of righteousness, to get the heavenly reward? Look, I know this sounds hard and maybe even harsh because I am a fallen, fallible conduit. I get it. It is not my intention to crush anyone. As I said, I've been living with these same questions. I'm no good. Trust me. But I want you to ask yourself these questions because even during our silent confession time, just a little later, I want us to ask these questions, please listen, because I want the sin to be rooted out of our lives because I want us to be perfect even as our heavenly father is perfect because I want us all to be storing up rewards in heaven because our hearts are deceptively wicked above all things who can know that because I want us to be a peculiar people in the midst of a godless culture Because ultimately I want the name of Jesus to be magnified and glorified in our midst. Because I want Jesus to receive the full measure of the reward for his suffering. And because I love you. That's why I'm begging you to ask these questions. Because I love you. Do you do what you do even the things of God, to be seen by others. If you do, you're a hypocrite. And Jesus will not stand for it. The Pharisees were the most religious people in Israel. Now, the astute among you will have noticed that I skipped a couple of verses. Let's turn now to verses 14 and 15 and talk about forgiveness. Matthew six fourteen and 15. Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A couple of things about these verses. First, they don't fit the pattern of the other sources of religious hypocrisy, do they? Forgiving to the needy and praying and fasting, Jesus gives us this pattern of when you give, when you pray, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, instead do this. That's the pattern that Jesus has given us, but not here, not here. In fact, Jesus' warning here in these two verses, and make no mistake, it is a warning. Jesus' warning here is even sharper, I think. Look at the verses yourself. I simply don't see any wiggle room there. The second thing we see here is that this warning gets right to the heart of the gospel, does it not? I mean, we sing, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. So we sing. Forgiveness of our sins is near the top of the list of the benefits of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, friends, is foundational to our faith. Quick aside, please, if you have your Bible in front of you, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. This, of course, is the Apostle Paul's great chapter on love. Keep your finger in Matthew 6. I probably should have told you that earlier. Okay, keep your finger in Matthew 6, but please go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. If you have, if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version on your lap or on your phone, then here is what you read there in verse 5, 1 Corinthians it says, Love is not rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. Now, I'm a fan of the English Standard Version. I'm preaching this morning from the English Standard Version. But I have to tell you, at the end of verse 5 there, and there's no other way to say this, That word resentful, at the end of verse 5, look at it. It's a horrible translation. I checked more than a dozen different translations, and except for the King James Version, and there's a reason why the King James has it, Okay, but except for the King James Version, the translations say something like, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of being wronged. The New American Standard Version, which I commend to you for study says love does not keep an account of a wrong suffered these are way more correct translations because the greek word here in verse 5 is logizomai logizomai it means to credit or to impute or to put into one's account. It's the same word, it's the same Greek word that is used when we talk about our sins being transferred or credited to or imputed to Jesus, our Savior, on the cross. Same word. And the commentaries, by the way, back me up on this. What's the point? The point is this. Paul tells us that love, true love, does not keep a record. It does not keep a ledger of wrongs that others have done against us. Now, back to Matthew 6. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, If you don't forgive other people their sins against you, then you will not be forgiven yourself. Let me me say it another way. Jesus says, If you keep a ledger of sins committed against you, then I will keep a ledger of the sins you've committed against me. I won't go back and read them all again. But perhaps this afternoon you might go back and meditate on the other scripture readings from before the sermon. Matthew 18, verse 35. Don't go there, just listen. Jesus says this, My heavenly Father will make every one of you pay off your own sin debt if you do not forgive those closest to you from your heart. And Paul writes in Colossians 3.13, Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So much for Paul and Jesus being at odds. You know, some people look at verses 14 and 15. Look at them again, please. They look at these verses and they balk at these verses with the following objection. Here's what they say. They say, preacher, that looks like works righteousness to me. I thought we were Protestants. You know, justification by faith alone. Preacher, are you now saying that I actually have to do something to guarantee my salvation? I'm not going to answer that objection for you this morning. Not directly. But I am going to give you a couple of things to chew on during the silent prayer time in a few moments. First, if this is your objection, please ask yourself, who's talking here in Matthew 6? It's not me. This is Jesus talking. Your issues with him. Two, if you're the person who raises this objection, please ask yourself where does this objection come from? What is the motivation in your objection? Is this objection coming from your new heart, your new self that's been given to you? Or is it coming from your sinful, fallen flesh? which doesn't want to forgive and needs to be killed. Third, what if you saw this warning from Jesus as a test? And the test question goes something like this. Do I have a new heart? A born-again heart? That not only wants to forgive, but rushes to forgive because I have been forgiven of the most heinous sins on a ledger as wide and as long as this room. That's the question. Bitterness and unforgiveness are like a prison. They're like a poison that slowly withers a flower or a soul until it is all shriveled up. But like that first drop of summer rain on that dry petal, new life and healing and freedom and forgiveness can blossom by the grace of God. And if the Son of God sets you free, you shall be free indeed. All right, I'm gonna wrap up now. Very briefly, I promise. And if you think I wouldn't rather have been sitting on that side with you, I can assure you you're mistaken. And I know that Pastor Scott is going to come up here and proclaim the gospel to you, but let me just say this to close. The blood of Jesus Christ is powerful to cleanse us, Christians and non-Christians alike, in this moment, from all sin. 1 John 5, 7. And this same Jesus who told us all these difficult things this morning, he also said these things, listen, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray.